When my wife and I first graduated from Ambassador College, we were sent to our first uh, ministerial training assignment, which was in the Northwest, which was an area neither of us had ever been. Now, we were told by a number of our friends who were from that area that the Northwest is God's country. And when we got there, I arrived in June, my wife came up in July, we're married in August, uh, I would have to say I could believe it. It was absolutely gorgeous. Now, of course, winter came and we realized that God went somewhere else for the winter. But in the summertime, it is absolutely one of the most beautiful places on earth. The pastor that I was assigned to work with came from a background that was somewhat like mine. So together, uh, he and I certainly enjoyed the opportunities to be out in the outdoors, hunting, fishing, hiking, that kind of thing. His wife was from North Carolina, so she and my wife had an immediate connection there. We had no family anywhere around for hundreds of miles. Uh, none of our family even was able to come to our wedding, but the local church members were wonderful. They took us in, they adopted us, and we felt very much a part of the family in that area. The main congregation had probably about 250 people who were a part of it each Sabbath, and our second year there, we assisted in starting a second congregation across a 5,000-foot mountain pass. It was about 80 miles away. And before long, there were probably about 50 people who were attending there as well. Now, anytime you come to a church area, and of course, we've had the opportunity to be in quite a few over the years, you find that there are certain people that stand out in your mind. There were many in that group that I could tell you stories about. But then again, they could tell stories about me, so we won't go there. But I will mention one individual who was very, very helpful for us. He was the man who was in charge of the highway between the two church areas, including that 5,000-foot mountain pass. He didn't work on Sabbath, obviously, but one of the things that he did was to tell his crew, I want that road in its peak condition every Saturday morning. They had no idea why. But we did. And as we would drive across there, especially in the wintertime with the snow piled higher than the top of the car, we really, really appreciated having that man carrying out that responsibility. In a congregation that size, it's fairly easy to keep track of people, whether they're there or not. And uh, most of the time, if somebody misses a week or two, you don't think too much about it. But if it's any longer than that, you begin to think, well, I wonder if there's, uh, if there's a problem, if we need to, to check with them. We noticed one older couple who actually lived fairly close by who uh, seemed to be missing for a few weeks in a row. So the pastor called them, asked if they were doing okay, if there's anything we can do to help. And they were reasonably friendly. Well, okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, no, I, I think we're fine. And he said, well, you know, we've, we've been missing you. And they said, well, yes, uh, we know. Uh, we've decided to leave the church. And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. Did, did I or, or someone say something that was uh, offensive in any way? Oh, no, no, it wasn't anything like that. People were very nice to us. That was, that was fine. Nothing you did. And he said, well, was it, a, was it a doctrinal problem, something that you believe we're not teaching correctly? They said, oh, no, that's, that's not it at all. As a matter of fact, um, we, uh, we believe exactly what the church teaches, um, and, and that's why we're leaving. And we said, no, wait a minute, we, we don't understand this. So the pastor said, you know, well, could we, uh, could we come over and talk uh, about this? And they said, well, 
Uh, I don't really see any reason to, but if you want to, sure, you're welcome, come on. So in a few days, he and I went to their home, and we began to talk with them to try to understand what the situation was. And as they began to explain it, they said, well, they said, we totally agree with what the church teaches, especially about the future. The future of the potential to be in God's family forever, or for those who aren't there, that they're going to end up uh, in the lake of fire and cease to exist. And they said, uh, we've thought about it a great deal, and uh, what we've decided is uh, we don't want to live forever. We simply want to finish our lives, and we're done. And since the only way for that to happen is the lake of fire, okay, well, we figure that's not going to last that long, so that's what we've decided to do. Well, you can imagine the pastor and I were a little bit uh, <laughs> unable to explain something, to speak for a moment, say, well, oh, wait a minute, uh, do you realize what you're throwing away? Do you understand what a tremendous opportunity God's just giving to us? And uh, they, they said, well, yes, we, we know, and, uh, but we just, we really don't want that. And so we talked for a little while and it became relatively clear there really wasn't much of anything we could do for them. So the pastor said, well, you know, could I, could I just call you from time to time, see how you're doing? Oh, sure. Yeah, you're a nice person. We'd be glad to talk to you. And we left. And as far as we know to this day, in spite of everything we tried to do to help them, that couple committed spiritual suicide. Never came back, never saw them again. Now, of course, only God knows for sure what the, the actual outcome is, and I'm very grateful for that. But it was a very sobering experience. Now, since it was that unusual, you may wonder, well, why am I telling you the story? Physical suicide is a burgeoning problem in our world today. Chances are good that virtually everyone sitting here from teen to adult knows someone who has either attempted or successfully committed suicide. Suicide is the 12th leading cause of death in this country. In 2020, it is estimated that 43,000 Americans took their own lives. That's about 118 every day or about one every 12 minutes. But as terrible as those numbers are, physical death is temporary. Spiritual death is forever. Yet you and I have been given the most amazing hope anyone could ever imagine. Is that hope enough to sustain you in those dark times when the God of this world assails us with loneliness and negativism and trial after trial. Your presence here is an indication that you do want to be in the kingdom of God. Why? Have you stopped to think about that? Why? As I began to think about this subject and think about whether I wanted to present a, try to put together a sermon on this, I passed the subject by a few people, and some people said, well, I don't really think we need something like that. Others said, no, actually, I think that sounds like a worthwhile subject. I couldn't get a consensus, so you figure that out. By the time I finish today, you'll know whether it was a worthwhile subject or not. I trust that it will be. What is it about the idea of being in God's kingdom 
that keeps you motivated, that keeps you struggling day after day against what most people would probably consider to be just normal pulls of human life, things that you wouldn't really, they wouldn't even think about fighting against. But you do, because you have a different set of values that govern your life. How real, how urgent is your desire to enter into and live in the family of God forever? You want to live forever simply because it beats being dead forever? If so, then I think the story of that couple can be a little bit disturbing because it makes me think, could I ever reach that point? Could I ever reach the point where the idea of being dead forever sounded better than living forever? Could it happen to me? Why? Why would a person want to be in the kingdom of God? For millennia, great thinkers have tried to come up with some kind of a reason for human existence, and they've come up with all kinds of ideas here and there. But it's very clear when you see what they say that there's something missing, something missing from what they're saying, what their ideas are, what they put forward as the reason for human existence. For those who have been around for a while, we might even use the phrase, there's a missing dimension. There's something they're not seeing that's really, really important. Without God's revealed truth, man's ideas ring hollow. Without the biblical revelation, whether it's a matter that a person is unaware of it, or they simply have let it slip from their view, life can become shallow and meaningless. I think one of the most amazing revelations of Scripture is that life really does have a purpose, a meaning. Many of us will remember reading that little black and white booklet called Why Were You Born? For some of you, maybe it was blue and white, but that's all right. Same booklet, most popular one we ever produced. And that booklet told us that if we would open that Bible and read through it, we would find that there are some of the most amazing promises given. Promises that tell us that life, as a matter of fact, does have a purpose. Now, if, like me, you came to the truth from another religious heritage, you probably heard things about heaven, hell, and so on. If you're a Roman Catholic, you probably heard about purgatory, but... Um, we won't go there. We won't go to heaven or hell either, but we just won't go to those things. You, you understand you heard those things. You heard them described. The pastor that we had, I remember as I was growing up, told us a little bit about heaven. He really liked to describe hell. But when we heard those things, it really didn't inspire you with a great deal of desire to be a part of that. In fact, heaven sounded pretty boring. But when we read what scripture actually says. When we began to be aware of the purpose that God gave to human life, that was exciting. Would a person who had that excitement ever lose it? You know, that can happen to any of us. Excitement can be a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to have. We're excited about all kinds of things. People get excited about a marriage or having children or travel. But excitement over a period of time tends to fade, and other matters begin to intrude into our daily thinking. Sometimes in the rush of daily living, trials that come through all of our lives, 
I think we find that the vision that God gives to us can sometimes begin to fade. At times it can seem so distant as to almost seem unattainable, like standing back and looking at a beautiful mountain and realizing the summit of that mountain is always out of reach. We can begin to feel that way about the calling we've been given. And at those times, if we allow that to take place, life can become little more than a hamster wheel existence, just running in circles. That's probably part of the reason why God summons us to the annual holy days each year to keep that vision before us. But even that only works if we're fully engaged. If we're simply observers, then probably even that will begin to fade rather quickly. I think sometimes as well we tend to put the promises of the future into generic terms. What I mean by that is it's nice to think about peace and prosperity and living forever and all of those things, but when we put it in just broad generic terms, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what does that mean for me. What does that look like for me? How is that going to affect my life and the way that I live? It's not really being negative. It's just, it's kind of hard to get excited about generalized blessings. It's not that I want more than you. I don't. But I may not want the same things that you do. There may be things that I look forward to that you wouldn't. Will we be different in God's kingdom? Will we all have the same tastes and preferences in music, in art, in entertainment, in activities that we might have? Will God's eternal children be a family of yellow pencils? Is there room for uniqueness in God's family? Or will everyone always agree with everyone else about everything? Well, today we're allowed to have different feelings, but what about the future? Will we all have the same abilities where there'll be difference there? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm not turning back there, but you may put it in your notes, in verses 10 through 15, Paul describes the fact that when the reward is given, that while all of those are given the gift of salvation, all of those who receive that gift of salvation receive that gift, it's not something earned, at the same time it makes it clear that there are actually differences in reward based upon how an individual builds on the spiritual foundation we've been given. Jesus' parables about the minas and the talents certainly give that same indication. Have authority over ten cities, have authority over five. Not everybody receives the same reward, so it would certainly seem that in God's kingdom there's going to be some variety. I think sometimes as well, it's just simply a difficult challenge for us to be able to paint in clear terms what this vision really is, to capture it, to capture it ourselves and then be able to give those words. I know many times at the feast I've spoken and come down from the, the stage thinking, well, I hope that helped, but I don't feel like I really nailed it. I didn't really say it as clearly as I, as I would like to. It's difficult to do that. Our generation, my generation, the baby boomers, we were going to change the world. We were going to end war, poverty, hunger, bring the blessings of freedom to the oppressed, save the environment. All these years later, we don't seem to be very much closer. 
In fact, we seem to be further away. But when those of us who had those hopes began to understand the truth, we learned that as a matter of fact, it wasn't just a dream. It wasn't just something that somebody hoped for, that as a matter of fact, there actually is a plan in motion that's going to bring all of those dreams about. The end of war, the end of poverty and hunger, the blessings of freedom. It is a God-given promise of a future where we would actually be given the power to do all of those things and more. That was a vision that stirred us. Does it still? Does it still stir us day after day as we face the challenges each day brings? And have we been able to adequately share that vision? With that generation that's getting ready to pick up the baton and take care of the church and those that God calls, how can you answer the question, why should you want to be in the family of God? Well, I'd like to break that down in the time I have left today into three fundamental questions. In some ways, they're going to overlap and merge with one another, but hopefully the three will help us at least kind of sort out our thinking and say, okay, what is the future? What does it hold for us? My first question is, what will it be like to be an eternal member of God's family? Okay. Simple, right? Uh, how does a physical being answer a question like that? Didn't Paul say that human eyes and human hearts have not comprehended what God has prepared for those that love him? Yes, he did say that. But of course, it's important that we remember that isn't the end of what he said. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, Paul wrote, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. Okay, close the book, done. Well, no. Verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. I would say in your life, you probably find that true. You find there are times when you just sit and think and meditate about the deep things of God. What does this mean? What's that going to look like? How will that be in my life? How is this world going to be different? Yes, I think God's Spirit leads us all in that direction. He says in verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Now, Quite honestly, I've never found another religious group that understands the concept of the spirit in man. I think it's an awesome concept. It's one we probably don't think about as often as we should. It was one that uh, the church was just beginning to understand when my family began to attend back in the mid-1960s. But it's an awesome concept that God has placed within each and every human being a spirit power that changes brain into mind. That's an awesome concept. When you read, and I won't turn back there, but when you read um, Zechariah chapter 12, the first verse, it describes 
a message that God is giving to people. But like in so many cases, when a speaker begins to present a message, the first thing they do is to say, okay, here are my credentials. Here's why you should listen to me. And when you read that first verse of Zechariah 12, it says, and I'm going to paraphrase, so I don't have it open right here, but the, this is the burden to Israel from the God who created the heavens, established the earth, and placed the spirit in man. Of the three greatest things it describes of God, the third is the creation of human consciousness and mind. That's an awesome thing. And Paul builds upon that in verse 11. No man knows the things of a man. We don't have mind if it weren't for the spirit in man. And then he goes on, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. The commentators very often will look at that and their explanation of it is, oh, well, what that means is nobody knows what God's doing except the Holy Ghost. That's not what it says. It means the same thing when he talked about the spirit in man that empowers human mind. It is the spirit of God that enables us to understand the things of God. How do we know that's the right explanation? Because we read the next verse. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. He tells us in those last few words of that verse that one of the reasons God gives us the awesome gift of his Holy Spirit is so that we can understand what is beyond human comprehension alone. So he wants us to see that. So though there are some facets we don't fully understand for sure, facets we are humanly incapable of understanding. We're not left completely in the dark. I think it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, I'm not turning there either, I'm just giving you the reference. You've read it many times. In 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul uses an interesting metaphor. He uses it in each one, a metaphor of a mirror. It's interesting because in the first century world, Corinth was noted for producing mirrors. Not mirrors like you and I have today. Obviously, they didn't have that technology available, but highly polished metal mirrors. They were the best in the world. So twice, first and second Corinthians each, the apostle Paul uses that metaphor. In chapter 13 and verse 12, Paul explained that right now, we view God's promises like looking at a dim reflection in a foggy mirror. Embedded in the annual holy days, is an amazing plan. And as we go through that and are reminded of it, he reveals that plan to us. And in the process, it's as if God wipes some of the fog off of the mirror. And you and I are able to look and see things that are absolutely awesome. Oh, not all we would like to see, to be sure. But we can see so much more because of that spirit of God. Some people read the prophecies of the millennium and misunderstand and misapply them. Some, not anyone here I would hope, but some misapply them that they're talking about heaven. Well, the last I checked, 
having the plowman overtake the reaper is not something that takes place in heaven. Those promises are millennial promises. And when we read through those promises, promises of peace and safety, promises of abundant crops, safe cities, all of those things, those prophecies are primarily millennial prophecies referring to the physical people who are still alive through that period of time. Years ago, Mr. Armstrong made it clear that when Jesus Christ returns, the kingdom of God is established over the world and rules. But those who are still physical are under that. They're not a part of the kingdom yet, though they will certainly have that full opportunity. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, the apostle Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. A profound change has to take place before we can be in the kingdom of God. The good news is God promises that change will take place. You remember the story in John chapter 3. You may turn back there. John chapter 3. A Pharisee comes to Jesus, a gentleman named Nicodemus. We're not fully told about his... Um, motivations and so on, but in many ways he seems to be a very genuine person trying to understand what Jesus is saying. And he asks about what the future holds and what Jesus' message is. We pick it up in verse 3 of John chapter 3. Jesus answered and said to him, now again that's an interesting phrase, he answered and said, he didn't just say something, he's answering a question. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, there's no question about this. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, being a practical man, said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a very logical question. And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then to clarify, lest there be any misunderstanding, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, you would have to answer for yourself, but when my alarm went off this morning, I had no question about whether I was spirit or flesh. It was clear. I won't say anything about when I stand on the bathroom scale. That tells me flesh too. Uh, that's, that's something that we are. We recognize that in ourselves. Now, since you and I are flesh, we rightly conclude that the rebirth that Jesus Christ is talking about refers to an event that has not yet occurred. Our birth as spirit-composed sons and daughters in God's family. Scripture shows that our change from physical to spirit is a change which occurs at the resurrection. Okay, if the resurrection describes our birth into God's eternal family, what metaphor could we use to describe our condition today? God's Spirit's been given to us, but we haven't matured enough spiritually to be born into his family. 
Therefore, we could conclude that we are like unborn children growing within the womb of the mother. And the metaphor that we have used through the years is that you and I, called to be a part of God's family in the future at the resurrection, have received the Spirit of God, are growing within what we have called the womb of the church, our mother. There are many lessons that we could draw from that. Both parents have a profound impact on the child growing within the womb. The father must certainly provide for and protect that child and mother. The mother has to nurture and protect the child as well. Studies have shown that a loving relationship between the mother and the father have a profound impact on that child even while it grows within the womb. I think we would also understand a little better if we think about that, how important our connection to the church really is. How important it is that that connection be strong and maintained. I was talking to one of our FI grads recently, and he said he had a friend, didn't know, he didn't mention any names, but he had a friend that said, well, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of taking a break from the church. Can a baby growing in the womb take a break from mom? That ought to tell us something about the fact that we need to maintain that connection at all times. In Isaiah 66, the prophet is inspired to describe the resurrection as the birth of an entire nation at once, in one day. I think each year as we come to the Feast of Tabernacles, excuse me, the Feast of Trumpets, and we, we think about those scriptures, we read through those, we probably try to imagine what that's going to be like. I mean, don't you, as we approach that time, think about people that you've known who died in the faith, who are going to be there at that resurrection, and what it will be like to be with them again. What it will be like when we read those, those passages about those who are alive and remain being changed and rising up with those who are dead and going up to meet Christ in the air and coming back to the Mount of Olives. Don't we all think about what that's going to be like? I don't see how we could read them and not have those, those thoughts go through our mind. Of course, then we not only think about what it's going to be like when everybody's there, but what's it going to be like to experience that as an individual? I sometimes wonder, is this going to be similar to what a newborn experiences when they are involuntarily expelled from the comfort of the womb into a world they've never known? And yet we all know that's the only way all of the wonderful opportunities can come. But this is what God plans for us. So what's that new existence going to be like? Near the end of the first century, the last surviving apostle, the apostle John, tried to at least give us a little insight into that. It's in 1 John chapter 3. And I cannot help but just think about here is this individual who was taught by Jesus Christ three and a half years, who's now been a faithful apostle of Jesus Christ for, what, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 years. And he's still struggling to explain it exactly. But here in the first verse of 1 John chapter 3, he says this, Behold, I appreciate the FI students not chuckling. 
we talked about Behold this past week. It's an invitation to look at this through different eyes, okay? John says, okay, think about this. Look at this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. If it doesn't recognize God, it doesn't recognize the Son of God, it's probably not going to recognize the children of God either. But then he says in verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. Just as a child growing in the womb is every bit of a child of those parents. We are children of God today. And it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. for We shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he's pure. Even John admitted we can't fully understand this. But he said, we know we're going to be like the resurrected Jesus Christ because he is the firstborn among many brethren. And we are those many brethren. And we're going to be like him. As you and I counsel for baptism, many of us went through three chapters in the book of Romans. Chapter 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6 explains a great deal about repentance, baptism, the attitude of complete and total surrender that we must bring to the throne of God in order to successfully begin our journey toward his kingdom. Chapter 7 shows us how utterly powerless we are on our own, with our own strength and human character, to make the changes that we need to make. Having all of us at some point or another Read chapter 7, verse 19, where Paul said, For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And we said, Oh, I know how you feel. Been there all too often. But instead of leaving us frustrated and discouraged, chapter 8 shows us what the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us can do both now and ultimately in the future. Notice, let's just pick up a few verses there in chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The Greek is very strong here about a longing, an aching for this to come about. Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, again, I want to go on and read that verse, but think about what that means. It means that in you and in me, there is a spiritual crop that's growing. First fruits produced by the Spirit of God. Oh, we haven't reached perfection yet. But in each of us where that spirit is growing, there are changes that are amazing, awesome, good changes. Haven't you at times looked at yourself and said, I actually see some good things here and I didn't put them there. Spirit of God did. So going on there, he says, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. 
For we were saved in this hope. This is what we're hoping for. Hope that's seen is not hope. We don't have it yet. Why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That concept will come up again as we get to the end of the message. Drop down to verse 29. For whom he foreknew, God fully chose ahead of time that he would call us, he also predestined. For what? If you were a good Presbyterian, you would know that John Calvin said you were predestined to either go to heaven or hell. What did Paul say you're predestined for? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Is that an awesome calling? You and I are predestined by God to become like Jesus Christ. What an incredible future. It is through that same Holy Spirit that God is already at work doing something miraculous, something utterly amazing in each and every one of us. And while what he is doing today is amazing, it's nothing compared to what he will yet do with that same spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 2 Corinthians 3, I'll read verse 17 and 18, but I want to read them from New Revised Standard Version. You can easily follow along. I just think it says it just a little bit more clearly. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18, and all of us, with unveiled faces, in other words, we, we don't have anything blocking our vision, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. By God's Spirit, you and I are in the process of being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. That brings us to our second question. What will we be able to do as members of God's family that we cannot do right now? Probably you can think of many things. As we age, we are all confronted with our physical, intellectual, and even spiritual limitations. In addition to that, it seems that we never have enough time to actually do the things that we really wish we could do. Many times those of us in the office talk about wearing so many hats that it, it seems like we never have time to really do a good job on something. We have to just get it done and move on to the next thing that's demanding attention. I suspect that's not just something that's a problem with employees of the Church of God, a worldwide association. I suspect you find that in your life too. So many things that we wish we could address. And when we look at that, we begin to ask, what will life be like if those limitations were removed? Because they will be removed. When you're immortal, time ceases to be a limitation. But how do we wrap our minds around that kind of a concept? When I was talking to a couple of people about this subject, one person said, well, you know, one of the things my 
teenage daughter asked me at one point is, well, Dad, if we're going to be living forever, won't we get bored? Is that an issue that we would have to be concerned about? Will we ever reach the point where we've done everything we could ever want to do, experienced everything we ever wanted to experience? Well, I will admit, I can't really understand an existence where time is essentially limitless. I think it's hard for us to grasp the answers to those questions, but I think we at least can have a few concepts that perhaps can help us understand. It helps me to remind myself, eternal life is not an untried experiment. God has lived forever, forever. He understands what it is to live forever. He is described by Isaiah in chapter 57 as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. And he is the one who is inviting us to join him in eternity. I have to say, I think probably at times God chuckles at our concerns about being bored. Think of a couple human examples. I've sometimes talked with young people who, you know, they look at the idea of, well, marriage is for life. Wow, if I marry this person for life, will I someday get bored with them? Or probably more what most of us would think is, I'm not really a very interesting person. Will they get bored with me? Well, I can say that for those of us who have been married a number of years, we will certainly confirm that married life is not an eternal existence of breathless excitement. But we can also say, you know what? We've never gotten bored. We've never gotten bored with the mate that God has given us. When you stop and think about the relationship, you never fully know another person. There's always something more to learn, something you didn't know, something they've been through. And for that matter, when both people are continuing to grow, then they both are continually bringing new things to that relationship. Boredom isn't really a serious problem. Maybe another example will illustrate that. I'll even take a quick survey. How many of you who are parents have been worried about your children being boring? I've never had a parent come to me. I don't see any hands up, but I, I've never had a parent come to me and say, boy, I'm really concerned. My children are just really boring. Ah, no. Children don't tend to be that way, are they? Endlessly creative. They always seem to come up with something else. I think it could also help us to realize boredom is not always bad. In fact, it is often a catalyst for creativity. We live in a society that seems to almost be frantically afraid of the idea of dwelling with your own thoughts. We have to plug in some kind of entertainment at every waking moment. But it's actually in those moments when we're not being distracted by something else that the greatest creativity often comes about. You've all seen the studies, I'm sure, where it comes to parents limiting the screen time their children have. For my generation, that screen was a television. Today a cell phone or a computer. What happens when you limit the time your children have in front of a screen? 
Oh, we're bored. And then, before long, they're doing things they've never done before. Hopefully good things, but they're doing things they've never done before. Yes, they're creative as they have those opportunities. Entertainment may temporarily distract us, but it very rarely produces creativity. Most of you have seen the movie Groundhog Day, in which Bill Murray plays a spoiled, egocentric TV anchorman who gets trapped reliving the same day over and over 12,395 times, except for one change. He learns more every day. And what he learns one day enables him to learn more the next day. Over the course of the movie, he changes from being a self-centered, selfish boar to becoming a caring, considerate person who learns to enjoy giving and sharing. Once the limitation of time is removed, life can become richer, fuller, and anything but boring. How will you be different when the limitations of time and physicality are removed? What would you like to do today that's impossible because of your limits as a human? In Psalm 16, I'm just going to read one verse. Psalm 16, verse 11. David said, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That sounds great. But we also know the resurrection is not just about bringing us all the pleasures and joys we could ever want. Even in the face of all of those wonderful promises, there is a dark side to our world today. Problems bigger than anything in your life or mine. Problems that we are powerless to change today. Yet, we long to be able to make them right. The sheer amount of heartache and suffering we see in the world every day can be so overwhelming that all we can do today is turn away in sorrow and pray for God's kingdom to come. Earlier, we talked about the weakness of considering the promises of the future in generic terms. In that way, we may not fully recognize what they mean for us. Same thing is true if we consider the problems of today in generic terms. When we think of sickness or hunger or war, in broad, generic terms, those can be little more than unpleasant words. But when it's a real person, someone that we know, someone we care about, who's sick or hungry or dying, it becomes much more real and urgent. When we put a face on the suffering, it's not just someone else's problem to resolve. We humans seem to have built within us an ability to turn away from thinking about the things we seem powerless to change. We talk about compassion overload, or reaching a point where we have to turn away in order to maintain some kind of a sense of stability. It's not exactly that we quit caring. It's just that we realize caring isn't enough, but it's all I have to offer. 
I'm not criticizing anybody for that reaction. I have it too. And I'm not implying there's something evil or wrong about it. It's not turning away from reality. It's just recognizing that reality is so painful and I am so powerless to do anything about it that if we don't disconnect from the things we're powerless to change, we begin to lose all hope. But as the mind of Jesus Christ grows within us, we begin to see the world through different eyes. I keep coming back to one particular passage, and I'm just going to read one verse from it. It's toward the end of Matthew chapter 9. It describes in that section where Jesus has gone out among the people. He's taught them. He's healed them. He's cast out demons. He's done a variety of things. And then Matthew is inspired to tell us what was in his mind at this point. Matthew 9, verse 36. It says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. How much compassion do we feel? And I think you do feel. I'm not criticizing or saying you don't feel enough. How much compassion do we feel as we look upon a world that we are powerless to change? One of the ways we will be different, one of the reasons we are being trained, corrected, and proven today is that our Father is going to share his power with us. And we will no longer be powerless to bring an end to the pain. Go back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 has always been one of the most beautiful chapters for me. Isaiah chapter 35. And I'll pick it up in verse 3. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. The folks who are just staggering along and barely able to keep going. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, how many people are fearful-hearted in this world today? Do you realize that two billion people live in areas that are under conflict today? That's one out of every four people alive on the earth living with this. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb sing. You know people who are in those categories? You know blind people? People who are deaf and struggle with that. People who are unable to move. He said, verse, continuing on in that verse, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. You imagine what it's going to be like when those people have this passage fulfilled in their lives. And you and I get to be a part of that. Drop down to verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord. Uh, that word ransom is a fascinating word. What's it like to be ransomed? What it's like, what's it like to be in a situation where you can't remove yourself from what you're suffering and someone comes along and buys you out of that? The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's an amazing promise. And that leads us to the third question. It's one we may not consider all that often, but I think you will agree it's probably as important as the other two. What will we never do again when we are in God's family? I think we would all agree with the generic statement that sin causes suffering and pain. But sins aren't generic. They're personal. I'm not told to repent of generic sin. I'm told to repent of my sins. How many people have you hurt by your sins? How many people have you failed because you failed to control your own selfish desires? How many people have been hurt because you let your ego control your words and your actions? I think all of us could pretty much answer the same way. Far too many. Far too many. Scripture tells us that God cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful to his perfect, righteous character. He can never do anything that harms his children. For God, that is the past, the present, and the future reality. For us, it doesn't describe our past reality. And sadly, it doesn't even describe our present. But it does describe our future. When we are changed and enter into his eternal family, we will never hurt anyone again by our selfishness, our arrogance, our laziness, our ignorance, our failure to consider others, our yielding to temptation. If that were the only promise offered to those striving today to come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, it would be worth every sacrifice we could give. In spite of human limitations to our understanding of the glorious future that God has in store for his children, what we can understand is so awesome, so wondrous, so desirable, that we should never have any doubt about what has to be the most important part of our lives every moment that we draw breath. And that can help us understand a little more deeply what the writer of Hebrews meant when he described the faith of the patriarchs in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll pick it up in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We've talked about it before. The word confess is probably not the greatest translation. The word itself means to be in total agreement with someone, to say the same thing that they say. So what the writer of Hebrews says in this verse is that these all died in faith, looking forward to some promises they didn't, they didn't have them, but they saw them afar off. They're assured of them. And they embraced them. They didn't just accept them. They didn't just acknowledge them. They embraced them. They wrapped their arms around them and held on for all they were worth. 
and they agreed with God that right now everything we're going through is temporary. We are strangers and pilgrims. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they'd called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But verse 16, now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Similarly, the Apostle Paul, who may very well have been the one who wrote those words in the book of Hebrews, late in his life, writing the final epistle that he wrote to his adoptive son, Timothy, 2 Timothy, he penned some immortal words. Paul, as he wrote these words from 2 Timothy 4, was probably sitting in a cell in a Roman jail, waiting for the sound of the executioners to come to the door. But what was on his mind? 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He said, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And then these wonderful words. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Becoming an eternal member of God's family is such an amazing promise that we must never allow anything to distract us, even temporarily, from keeping that goal continually before our eyes.